Good morning, my name is Zach, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Uh, This morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 starting in verse 2. That's 1 John chapter 5 starting in verse 2 as we continue uh, our study through the book of 1 John. We are uh, getting towards the end of this book and then we'll be in 2 and 3 John which are a lot shorter and then we will actually be in the Psalms which will be a lot of fun, a little selection from the Psalms. Uh, But today we're going to be in 1 John 5 and he's going to be talking about the same thing he's been talking about for a while. How do you tell true from false Christians and what does it mean to love one another? So a few of us on staff uh, were out eating the other day at Whataburger because we care about our bodies and uh, we were all talking and then Jared Lawson, our pastoral resident, decided to tell us a story and it started like this. When I was a little kid, my mom used to make potato soup. That's what he said. So we're instantly thinking, wow, Jared, this is a really exciting story. We're glad that you are telling us this. Please tell us more. He goes, yeah, my mom used to make potato soup, and we would, uh, and then he stopped, and he goes, no, it wasn't potato soup. There were uh, Fritos, and we said, Jared, Fritos are chips. What are you saying? You just said your mom made soup, and now you're saying something about Fritos. He's like, yeah, you guys know how you, like, take Fritos, and you, you put them on potato soup, and we're all like, nope, none of us do that. And he goes, no, you know what? Actually, it wasn't potato soup. It was tomato soup. You remember, Jared has dyslexia. You say tomato, he says potato. That's just how it works for him. And so he said, yeah, no, we we took Fritos and we'd crush them up and we'd put them in tomato soup. And I looked at him and I said, are you sure you don't mean chili? And he thought about it for a second. He goes, I do mean chili. So I said, let me summarize this story, Jared. Your mom used to make you a Frito pie. Is that what you're trying to say? Okay, after he told this story, you know, Jared, He's kind of like the little kid brother of the staff. We just gave him some noogies and moved on. Uh, After that story, I was not sure that Jared had ever had chili or a Frito pie or potatoes or any of that. Though he was saying that with his mouth, the evidence that he gave called all that into question. And so in the same way, what John is doing is he is separating out those who claim to have had chili pie, those who claim to have had a Frito pie, those who claim to be true Christians and and those who are not. He's separating out for those who say that they're Christians, which includes true Christians and false Christians, he's letting you know which one is which. He's letting you know which one is true and which one is false. So let me pray for us and then we will get into uh, verse two. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We pray that you would bless this time as we listen to this uh, this text. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray uh, for our country. We pray for everything going on uh, politically and socially. We pray for health and protection with the coronavirus stuff going on. We just ask for help. And so would you be with us as we study this text? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Verse 2 starts this way. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Okay, let's look at the first part of verse 2. It says this. By this We know that we love the children of God. A few things on this little phrase here. First of all, what does the word this refer to? You see, throughout the book of 1 John, John will use the word this or that, and it's very difficult to tell whether or not he's talking about what preceded the verse or if he's talking about what comes after the word this or that. Well, thankfully, in this case, though, it's actually pretty clear. When he says, by this, he's about to explain what the this is. By this, we know that we love the children of God. So this is going to be looking forward to this next phrase here in verse 2, okay? The next thing, before we move on, is we have to ask this question, what does the phrase children of God mean? 
Throughout the Bible, it will use the phrase children of God. Sometimes it will use the phrase sons of God or daughters of God or any of these kind of things. So let me be very clear on something before we progress. Does everyone here know what an equivocation is? An equivocation is where you use one word in several different ways. I would say that 95% of all mistakes made in reasoning comes from what is called an equivocation. We use this example all the time here at Parkway. The word run can have several different meanings. You can go for a run. You can run for office. Your nose can run. You can have a run in your hose. You can be a drug smuggler, and the route you take is called a run. R-U-N, same word, same spelling for all these different definitions, but the context dramatically changes the meaning of the word. Or a lot of jokes are based upon an equivocation, right? So there's a joke that goes, what do you call the guy who edited Hitler's speeches? A grammar Nazi. And the reason that that's a joke is because a grammar Nazi is somebody who cares too much about grammar. They just are too obsessed with whether you should or shouldn't have a comma or whatever it might be. But it's also literally the person that edited Hitler's speeches, an actual Nazi who really cares about grammar, okay? That's an equivocation. Well, here's what you need to understand. The phrase children of God or sons of God or whatever is used several different ways throughout the Bible, and it's very important that you don't mix up the meanings, okay? There there are equivocations, and equivocation's not bad as long as you realize by the context that that's what's happening. So I'll give you a few examples. Sometimes angels are, are called sons of God. Now, let me be clear. Angels are in no way related to God, okay? They're just called that because they were created by God. They are these heavenly beings, and so sometimes they're called that. Sometimes humanity generally is called God's children or God's sons and daughters just because God created us, okay? This is actually what it means in the Old Testament when it calls Jesus everlasting Father. It's not saying he within the Trinity is the person of the Father. He's the person of the Son. The reason it's calling him Father is because he's Father in the sense that he is the Creator and everything comes through him, okay? Other times when the Bible will talk about Son of God, specifically in the singular, it's talking about Christ, and it has a very unique meaning, that Jesus is the Son of God by nature. He is eternally the second person of the Trinity, the Son. There was never a time where the, when the Son didn't exist. If the Son has not always existed, then the Father has not always been Father because He must be Father to someone, Okay? And so we can use this phrase in a bunch of different ways, and it's really important that you don't mix them up. Here specifically, when John says children of God, what he's talking about is Christians. He's talking about those who are God's children by adoption. Jesus and Jesus alone is God's son, the only begotten son. When the Bible talks about us being sons or daughters of God, it means by adoption. It's a status that we've been given, though we're just these little creatures made out of the dirt. Okay, it's very important that you understand that distinction. We've used the analogy here before of somebody who goes not to an orphanage, but goes to a pound and adopts a puppy and then treats that puppy like they're part of their family. That's what God does in adoption. God goes and he takes a being that is unlike him, humans, and he gives us this status of being seen as part of his family through faith in Christ and through regeneration. And so here what he's saying is by this, what I'm about to tell you later on in verse 2, we know that we love those who are Christians. Okay? We love those who are Christians. So before we move on to the second part of verse 2, let me just kind of get, give you what, what John is getting at. John has already been clear that if you say you love God, but you don't love God's adopted children, that you don't really love God. That the two go together. So Jared Lawson, who I've already made fun of, is actually a guy that I really love. 
That's why I feel free to make fun of him because sarcasm is kind of my love language. And so Jared is somebody that I love. And because of that, I had already decided even before he was born that I would love his son, Harvey. Okay? He has a, uh, a little baby. He has a son named Harvey. And I don't know anything about Harvey. I don't know if he's going to grow up to have a terrible personality. I don't know what he's going to like or not like. I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me, but it doesn't matter because before he was even born, I had already decided because I love Jared, I will naturally love his child. And I do. And so a few weeks ago, I made some jokes about how big Harvey is. That's not because I don't like Harvey. It's because I do like him. To call a baby chubby is a compliment. It's not the same when somebody becomes an adult for whatever reason. But to call a baby chubby is a compliment. So I made all these jokes about uh, how his arms look like Olive Garden breadsticks and these kind of things. But it's ultimately because I love Harvey. Now, before moving on, I think I need to reemphasize how large Harvey is, though. I think this is an important part of the sermon, okay? He is literally so big that he cannot wear socks. His little feet will turn purple. He has to wear like two-year-old socks even though he's an infant, okay? It looks like he's wearing pool floaties under his clothes. He just can't drown this little baby. And if you ever get a chance to hold him, it feels like he has no bones. It's like trying to hold a big sack of porridge, okay? All right, I'm done. I'm done making fun of, uh, of Harvey. I have a fear that one day he will actually grow up and hear one of these sermons and then he will try to take revenge, probably by eating me. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm actually done with Harvey. I'll move on. I'll move on. Now, here's what you need to see before we move on in verse 2. The better motivation for loving other Christians is actually because you love God. Okay? Now, let me, let me tell you why this is important. You will meet other Christians that you don't feel this natural desire to love them. Maybe you know of someone, a Christian at your workplace that you don't really like. Maybe there's somebody uh, at Parkway who's a Christian that you don't really like. Maybe your spouse, you even feel like, my spouse doesn't really deserve my love because though they're a Christian, I don't feel like they're great. Well, I think one of the ways that you can actually learn to love people that are difficult to love is that you do that because you love God. You make your motivation for loving them, not loving them, you make your motivation for loving them that they belong to God. There's a way where if I see somebody that I don't really like that I know is a Christian, where I can just either have nothing to do with him or I can think God loves this person. And because I love God, this is a chance for me to use that as a proper motivation for loving them. Now let's look at verse 2 again because we just looked at this uh, first phrase here, but the first phrase goes very much with the second phrase. It says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, I want to say something about an implication of this text before I put verse 2 all together. Here's the first thing I want you to see about the second part of verse 2. We don't intrinsically know what is loving. We as sinful humans do not intrinsically know what is loving. This is something God has to reveal to us. So to say it stronger, stop trusting your heart. Stop doing what you think seems right. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that all the thoughts you hear in your mind are God's words or something like this. Stop doing that. Mankind does not intrinsically know what is loving, which is why this part of the text has to say, link love, loving God, and then also by implication loving others with obeying his commandments. I'll give you a few examples. Euthanasia seems loving in the flesh. If you're someone who's not a Christian, that seems loving, that somebody is in pain and they don't want to live anymore and there's no hope of recovery and so you uh, end their life, that seems to be loving because our hearts don't actually know what's right. God's love has to be revealed to us. Sleeping with your girlfriend seems loving. 
Just from the flesh, you think to yourself, well, we're already going to get married anyway. This seems to be a loving act because our hearts lie to us. Allowing people to do what makes them happy naturally just seems to be loving. That seems to be kind. The Bible has to push back on that because we don't naturally know what's loving. Not offending people seems to be something that's loving, right? Not offending people seems to be something that's loving. Far too many of us would rather be peacekeepers than peacemakers. There's something weird about the heart of humanity, whereas we would rather go through a little bit of pain for the rest of our lives instead of going through one season of a lot of pain and then walking in total freedom. We don't naturally know what's loving. God has to give us his commandments so we know what's loving. Not spanking your kids seems loving. They're cute. They're little. That's why the Bible has to say that you should, with the rod, discipline them. Because the Bible knows that our hearts will think that it's mean. God has to say, no, it's not mean. It's actually loving. Not saying harsh or sarcastic things seems loving. I even hear this from a lot of pastors. Well, they will say, you shouldn't be sarcastic. You shouldn't be cynical. You shouldn't say things that are mocking. And then I just rip my hair out and think, read your Bible before you become a pastor. Please do that. God mocks, Jesus mocks, Paul mocks, they all mock. They use sarcasm, they're very cynical. Mockery is an attribute of God, as is goodness. If the God you serve doesn't mock stupid things, you're not serving the God of the Bible. Keeping people from the results of their actions seems loving, just naturally. I have this conversation with a lot of uh, parents who have kids that are maybe 16, 17, 18, whatever it is, and they say, Zach, my kid is just acting horrendously, what do I do? And I say, easy, you kick them out of the house. If they'll obey, even if they're not a Christian, if they'll obey your rules, they can stay in the house. But if not, you kick them out of the house. But Zach, then they'll get the consequences of their actions. Exactly. But Zach, they might not be able to get a good job. That's right. But Zach, they might go to jail. That's right. I'm not trying to keep them out of jail. I'm trying to keep them out of hell. And loving somebody is sometimes letting them have the consequences of their actions. You see, even as I say that, it starts to, it feels tense. It feels mean. It feels kind of harsh because we don't intrinsically know what is loving, which is why the Bible will have to to, to teach us that loving God and loving others is linked to knowing God's word. It is linked to knowing his commandments. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk about the coronavirus. There's a little harsh transition for you. Why are we talking about it here? Well, one, it's a big thing that's going on. But two, this text is talking about loving other Christians and it's talking about loving God. So we don't do a lot of politicking here at Parkway. We don't have like a politician come in and, you know, tell you who to vote for or something like this. But because the Bible is applicable for today, when the Bible is addressing a topic that's going on in society or culture, we feel as though it is best to address that topic. And so because we're talking about loving And loving others, let me just give you a few thoughts on the whole coronavirus thing that is uh, going on, the pandemic that's currently going on uh, even as we are uh, recording this sermon, okay? So a few things. First of all, the Christian response to this should be aggressive in our action but peaceful in our heart. Okay? There's, there's really two sides of the spectrum that are not doing very well when it comes to the uh, pandemic of the uh, coronavirus thing that is going on. On the one side, you have people that are doing nothing. They think, okay, well, I'm not going to die. It doesn't really affect me. I'm in good health. And so they do nothing. That's not the appropriate response. But on the other end, you have people that are just absolutely freaking out and being fearful. That's not the right response either. Okay? 
In fact, people are freaking out so much they're not even following the directions that they're being given. The CDC's like, wash your hands, and they're like, buy all the toilet paper. The CDC's like, no, no, seriously, just wash your hands. And they're like, convert all the money into gold. No, li- listen, let's, so let me give you where you as a Christian should stand on this position, which, like most areas in Christianity, is a position of moderation, okay? On the one hand, you have a moral obligation to the extent that you are able to try to not spread an infectious disease. So you should be washing your hands. You should be, if you feel sick, staying home from work. If your kids are sick, please do not send them to school. If they may be sick, please do not send them to school. Please do not send them to Parkway. None of that is loving. What what you've been asked to do is not barricade yourself in your garage with your shotgun. What you've been asked to do is just basic, simple procedures like washing your hands, covering your cough, not by coughing on your hand, but by coughing into your elbow, whatever it might be, okay? Okay. So on the one hand, you don't need to just think this doesn't affect me, who cares? You as a Christian have to care about global humanity. This is a conversation that comes up every few years depending on what issue is going on. In World War II, Christians had to be told to not hog all the food, just like the rest of America was told not to hog all the food. People started victory gardens and these kind of things because they realized this isn't just about me and my family, it's about others. I've had to have conversations with hardcore anti-vaccine people, and I have to say to them, this issue is not about your personal convictions. It's not about what you think for you and your family. It's about globally, how does this work? You have to think about humanity at large. So that's what some of you need to hear on the one hand. On the other hand, if you're somebody who is freaking out, you need to hear that God is not a God of chaos, okay? Fear and anxiety is not the appropriate response. You need to understand that God is good and God is loving. The solution to your fear is not statistics. The solution to your fear is not that we come up with a vaccine. The solution to your fear is not hoping that you don't get it. The solution to your fear is realizing that God is good and God loves you. If you have fear, especially fear of death, which we've talked about in 1 John, then you have not been what the Bible would say perfected in love. You don't quite yet know God's overwhelming love for you. Doesn't mean you're lost just because you have fear. I have fear to some extent on this issue, but it's a place where I need to grow in understanding God's love. As a reminder, okay, we've already had a national emergency and a pandemic with an infectious disease back in 2009. You've already lived through one, okay? So you need to understand, just historically speaking, these things happen every few years to every few decades, and the world goes on. As a helpful reminder to you, the Bible does not teach that an infectious disease wipes out humanity. If you have this fear that one day some infectious disease is going to come and it's just going to be the zombie apocalypse and kill everybody, that's not a biblical worldview. Notice that when Jesus returns, he comes back to people and not just all sick people, okay? If you have a view that the world's going to end by a giant meteor, if you have a view that the world's going to end because of global warming, whatever your thing is that you're freaking out about, you need to understand that's not a biblical worldview. The world doesn't end that way. The world ends with the second coming. And when Christ comes back, there's still people to come too. And so keep that in mind as you are thinking about this. So on the one hand, yes, wash your hands, stay home if you need to, avoid large gatherings. On the other hand, know that one, you are relatively safe for most Americans. If you are much older, you have some underlying medical conditions, you need to take extra precautions. But for the average person, this is, uh, the, the death rate is very, very, very low. And by God's grace, when it comes to little children, almost, if not, non-existent, okay? So, rant over. But I wanted to mention that because that does, I think, have to do with what is going on with loving God in our day and in our time and loving others specifically in practical ways. Now, look at verse 2 again. I want to put this all together. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What the heck does that mean? 
I would have said, here's how we know we love the children of God, when we love the children of God. I would have said the way that you know that you love other people is by loving other people. But notice that's not what this text says. This text says that the way you really know that you're loving others is if you're obeying God. Isn't that fascinating? So let me say it this way. You cannot properly love other people if you do not love and obey God. That's what this text is saying. You cannot properly love other humans if you cannot and do not and do not know how to love God. Carl taught about this a few weeks ago, that if you can't love your brother who you can see, surely you can't love God who is unseen, who you can't see. These two ideas go together. If you do not know Christ, if you do not obey God, you do not know how to properly love other humans, okay? You can do actions that society thinks are good, but you're not doing it with the right motivation. So so let me ask this question. Can an atheist really do a good act in God's eyes? No. Yes, they can do an act that society says is noble. They can help a little old lady across the street, or they can, you know, help somebody move, or they can donate some money to charity, despite the fact that I don't see very many hospitals named after atheists. They're all named after Presbyterian something, or Methodist something, or, you know, St. John's Catholic Health, or whatever it might be, okay? But you can't really love others if you don't love God, because you're not even doing it from the right motivation. If I'm really nice to my grandmother so I can get into her will, is that a righteous act? Well, the act in and of itself might seem righteous, but I've got an evil motivation. If you don't know Christ, your motivation for helping others is not based on the thing it should be based on. It's not based on giving glory to God. To say it as strongly as I can, before you were a Christian, it's not just that you sinned, It's that all you did was sin because even your good acts you did not do in faith. You did not do for the glory of God. You did it for other reasons. To try to earn God's favor, which is sin. To try to make yourself feel good, which is sin. To try to just exalt humanity apart from the glory of God, which is sin. You see, God doesn't just care about the action. He cares about the motivation. A lot of friendships are based in selfishness. We're friends with people because we get something from them. They make us laugh or we share a common interest or whatever it might be. And so this is a helpful reminder that if you don't know Christ, you can't properly love other people. You don't know what that means and your your relationship with your creator has not been restored. This, by the way, is also the solution to your marital conflict. If you have a lot of conflict right now in your marriage with your spouse, you don't primarily have a marriage issue, you have a theological issue. There is a way that you or your spouse is not viewing God rightly, not viewing God as one who's lovely and beautiful and one who has forgiven you and that you are clean and spotless and everything's going to be okay. And that is the first thing that needs to change. You need to understand who God is biblically, to submit yourself to God, to understand him rightly. That's the solution to the marriage conflict. You can't fix each other. You can't fix yourselves. You need the gospel. This is why he's going to say, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John Calvin says it this way, men are loved rightly and duly when God stands first. The venerable Bede, the uh, medieval church historian says, only someone who is on fire with the love of his maker can be said to love his fellow humans in the right way, okay? In the right way. So let me explain how this goes. I mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, but I wanna mention it again. In 1 John, He'll talk about love a lot. And sometimes he's talking about God's love for you. Sometimes he's talking about your love for God. Sometimes he's talking about your love for other people. And he mixes all these together. Because in John's mind, these things should all stand together. 
okay? But what you need to understand is theologically there is an order to these loves, okay? There is an order to these loves. The first and most important step is realizing that God loves you, okay? So imagine that you, there's, there's you and God is above you and he is just shining down his love on you, okay? That's the first step. Even when you're a sinner, even when you're lost, we love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the reasons that we are reformed here at Parkway. Nobody chooses God because nobody wants God. So God has to look across the sea of damnable humanity and say, no one will choose me because everyone hates me. So I can either A, send everyone to hell justly, or B, save some out of my mercy, but I have to take the first step. So step one is you need to realize God just gives his love to sinners. He just gives grace. He just gives forgiveness to sinners. That's step one. Step two is when you finally realize God's love, you finally realize his grace at conversion, it causes you to love God back. That's step two. That's not step one. It's not that I love God and then he loves me. It's that he loves me and that causes me to love God. That's step two. And then once that vertical relationship has been healed between you and God, you are now free to love others. That's step three. It has to go in that order. God loves you first. You understand that and that causes you to love God. And that healed relationship causes you to love other people. You can't get the steps out of order. It doesn't work. If you say, I just want to really love God, that's step two. You can't just conjure up feelings for God. You can't just conjure up obedience that lasts more than a week. You have to start with step one, God loves me. I'm forgiven, I'm clean, I'm perfect, I'm seen as one who's in Christ, I don't have to worry about hell. Those kind of thoughts produce the love of God in you. Or you might say, well, I wanna love other people. John's clear that I should be loving other people, especially other Christians, so I'm gonna get out there and just try to love other people. That doesn't work. Why does there have to be a new social justice movement every generation? Why aren't these deals, why aren't these things ever dealt with? Why isn't, why isn't there ever a solution? Because you can't heal the brokenness in humanity apart from the gospel. You have to have that. If you want to love others, you're on step three. You have to, you've missed two steps. You have to be loved by God first, love God second, and then it overflows to others. That's why the greatest commandments are in this order, that you love God first with everything. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. That's how the flow, the flow of love has to work. Verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, okay? Let's look at the first part of that. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Here, John is not gonna pull any punches. Here's what he's gonna say. He's gonna say, your love for God is objective. You can actually tell. If somebody says, I love God, or they say, I love Jesus. You hear that phrase used a lot in evangelicalism. This person really loves Jesus. But they do not obey him. The Bible here says they do not love him. This is not something subjective. It doesn't say, and this is how you know that you love God, by your emotions, by your feeling, by your church attendance, by whatever it is. It's very clear, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Conversely, maybe you're somebody who does love Jesus, but you're really afraid that maybe you're not a Christian, but your lifestyle shows that you've been transformed by the gospel. That should give you a sense of encouragement. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not you will just cry a bunch and talk a bunch about me and put a fish on the back of your car and ick through a bumper sticker. You'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, okay? What John is saying is that you can know whether or not you actually love God by whether or not you repent of sin, you seek to put sin to death, and you obey God. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, a few clarifications around this. First of all, John is not teaching what is called theological liberalism, okay? Not what is called theological liberalism. What is theological liberalism? Let's do a little church history. It is a movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s that starts in Germany, and it spreads over to the UK and the US, and it is a movement that seeks to downplay doctrine. It seeks to downplay orthodoxy. It seeks to downplay all the things that make Christianity Christianity and just focuses on this generic view of God as Father and this generic view that we should love one another. Back before that, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was a uh, theologian and philosopher, a German, named Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. There's a good name for any of you pregnant ladies that are looking to name your kid something. Uh, there's a good name. Actually, don't name your kid that because this guy's really awful. Let me tell you what Schleiermacher did. He's the father of theological liberalism. What he did is he reshaped Christianity and made it about what it wasn't traditionally about. Traditionally, Christianity is about orthodoxy. It's about doctrine. It's about sin and forgiveness and the reconciliation between God and man and resurrection and uh, new heavens and new earth and eternal judgment and doctrinal things. What Schleiermacher did is he made Christianity about two things. He made it about one, a feeling, notice that it moves from objective to subjective, a feeling of general dependence upon God and about simply loving other people, okay? From Schleiermacher on, theological liberalism gives you the shell of Christianity without its essence. What it tries to do is it tries to say Christianity is really just about having this feeling of dependence or love for God and also just about social work and helping other people, okay? Now, let me be extremely clear. It is true that in Christianity, we do want to help other people. We are commanded to, to feed the poor. We are commanded to help those in need. We're commanded to weep with those who weep. We are commanded to help other people, but you need to understand that that is secondary to the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. The gospel is about God and man. The social justice gospel, which is a perversion of the gospel, is just about man and man, okay? So yes, we as Christians should be involved in helping other people, but you need to understand that's not the primary thing. The primary thing is the glory of God, okay? To say it stronger, helping others is good and you should do it, but it's a silver medal. The gold medal in Christianity is loving Christ. In the book of Acts, there are these ladies, these widows, who are being overlooked in the distribution of food. So you've got these little ladies and they don't have food. And the disciples say to them, we don't have time to give you food because we're doing theology things. We're preaching and praying, okay? But they don't just leave them there. They, they have these men designated who may or may not be the first deacons, and they take care of those ladies. So notice the church does both. The church preaches the gospel and helps people, but it has to go in that order. Okay, you can't reverse the order. So this text is not saying that by loving God, we just know whether or not someone's a Christian just by if they have these nice actions. There are kind Buddhists and kind atheists that seem to have these actions. John is assuming that you already have correct theology. He's assuming that you've already been reconciled to God, and he's saying that if you really have, the actions will follow. The actions will follow. But before we look at the second half of verse 3, I want to mention something else in the first half. This text just said that if we really love God, we will obey his commandments. Okay? What are those commandments? Well, I, I think, and to, to one extent, it's everything that we as New Testament believers are under today. Not the Mosaic law, which has been fulfilled in Christ, but everything we as Christians are under today. 
But more specifically, in 1 John, God's commandments are linked to loving God and loving others. That's kind of the summary that's given for God's commands. But here's my question for you. This text says, if you really love God, you will obey him. What do we do with that? Because everyone in here, this should be a little bit convicting. Some of God's commandments I keep, but sometimes I don't. What what do we do with that? If you really love God, you'll keep his commandments. And all of us don't keep his commandments. So what do we do? How do we actually learn to keep his commandments? How do we actually grow in holiness? Let me give you two thoughts, okay? The first one is more important than the second one. But I've already talked about the first one in my last two sermons. So if you want to hear more about that, go listen to those, okay? But the first one is simply this. How do you grow in holiness? How do you actually learn to follow God's commands? The first thing you need to know is that you have to realize that God loves you even when you don't follow his commands. You have to realize that God loves you even when you don't follow his commands. The way you grow in holiness is realizing that God still loves you even when you're not growing in holiness. The way that you grow in a desire to read your Bible is to know that God loves you even if you don't read your Bible. The way you'll grow in a desire to pray is to realize that God loves you even if you don't pray. So the first thing you need to realize is your salvation is dependent upon the merits of Christ and not how well you do in keeping the commandments. That's the first and most important thing you need to hear. Christianity is about resting. It's about receiving. It's about knowing everything's gonna be okay. If you're a Christian here, listen. If you're a Christian listening to this, listen. We're all gonna make it. We are going to make it if you are somebody who's a Christian. That's the first thing you need to hear, okay? But here's the second thing you need to hear. Are there actions you can take not for your justification and not even being the active agent in your sanctification, which is only the Holy Spirit. Are there some actions, though, that you can take to teach your sinful heart how to rest in God's love more, how to love God more? I think so, okay? Let me, let me give you a few, uh, few examples and unpack this. Aristotle. Everybody know who uh, Aristotle is? He's kind of a big deal. In the top philosophers in world history, he's in the top two, okay? So he's a pretty big deal. And uh, in his book, Nicobachean Ethics, he writes an entire ethical system, okay? Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that, and we don't really care about Aristotle. Aristotle's going to say something that I think is already in the Bible, and so I think this is God's idea before it's Aristotle's, but this is the idea with Aristotle, okay? That you can practice through your actions things that actually shape your heart, okay? You can practice through your actions things that actually change your heart and change your desires. Let me give you an example. The first time you ever try to shoot a basketball, okay, you're not going to be very good at it. You're going to do the granny shot in between your legs, or you're going to do this thing where you kind of flip it with both hands. You're not going to have that perfect, you know, Zach Lee basketball form as you should have in shooting a basketball, okay? The first time you try to learn to shoot a basketball, you're not going to love it because you're not good at it, and you're not going to be very good at it. You're going to have to practice it even though you're bad at it to actually get better, You can't just go and kneel before your bed at night and pray, dear God, please let me be able to be great at basketball even though I don't practice. Amen. He's not going to do that. The way that that prayer gets answered is through you practicing. It's through you going out there. Even though you're bad when you're practicing at first, even though you don't really love it, you practice and you practice and you practice. And what you find is over time, you start to get better. And you actually start to like it a little bit more. Jeff mentions this all the time. When he first started going to the gym, he didn't like it, but he disciplined himself to do it. And then, guess what? His heart caught up to his actions. His heart now, he actually likes going to the gym. Or imagine for a second that you're learning to play the piano, okay? When you first try to play the piano, you will be really bad at it. 
It's not fun. You're memorizing notes and you're having to put your hands in weird positions and these kind of things. And if you just say, dear God, please give me the ability to play the piano, that prayer is probably not going to get answered because that's not the way that God has ordained that you learn to play a piano. You're going to have to practice playing the piano even though you're bad at it and even though it sounds bad and even though you don't love it. And then you look back 10 years from then and you're able to play the piano with freedom and play beautiful music and all of a sudden now you love it. So what Aristotle would say is, why can't that be true of virtue as well? So if you're somebody who is fearful and anxious, instead of just praying, dear God, take away the fear and anxiety, which God typically doesn't answer that prayer that way, what God instead will do is he will give you opportunities to be fearful or anxious. And what you have to do is you have to not think those thoughts. When a scary thought pops into your mind, you have to not think about it. And after you've practiced not thinking anxious thoughts for 10 years, all of a sudden you've actually become less of an anxious person. You've actually learned how to fight it off. But Zach, I try that and I'm not good at it. I know, neither is someone who starts playing a piano or starts trying to play basketball. We're not good at it. You will fail many, many times as you learn to shape your sinful heart and teach it what it should like. If you're someone who struggles with lust, typically God just doesn't take away this lustful desire. What happens is when a, an impure thought comes into your mind, you have to think of something else. And after practicing casting away these evil thoughts for a decade, you actually find that you're a bit less lustful, okay? And so the thing you need to hear, how can we grow in holiness? How can we actually follow God's commands better? The first thing you need to hear is God's love for you is not dependent upon how well you do. We've already mentioned that. But the second thing you need to hear are there, is that there are actions that you can take that teach your heart what it should like. So I think you should read your Bible even though you don't feel like reading your Bible because you know why? You'll look up 10 years from then and you'll actually enjoy reading it and you will have learned a lot of truth along the way. I think that you actually pray even when your heart's not fully into it. That's not faking it. That's not being inauthentic. Your identity in Christ is the most authentic thing about you. Doing the right action when your heart doesn't want to because it's sinful is the most authentic way to live. These are some ways I think that we can grow when it comes to obeying God's commands. Look at this last phrase. And his commandments are not burdensome. And his commandments are not burdensome. Okay? Now what on earth does this mean? What on earth does it mean to say his commandments are not burdensome? In my notes, in preparing for this sermon, under that text, I literally just wrote, but his commands are burdensome. What do we do with this text? Okay? Let me be clear of what it does and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can fully follow all of God's commands. We've already talked about this. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is an impossible command. To let no unwholesome speech ever come out of your mouth is an impossible command. James says nobody can do it. Only a perfect person could do it, okay? This text also doesn't mean that some of God's commands aren't very difficult. God gives really, really difficult commands, sometimes even to the point of Christian martyrdom, okay? So some of his commands are very difficult. What does it mean to say that God's commands are not burdensome? Well, To understand that, we have to get into next week's sermon just a little bit. So if we look together at 1 John 5, 4, and we read the end of verse 3 with that, it says this, And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Here's what he's saying. When it says God's commands are not burdensome, it doesn't mean some of them are not difficult. It doesn't mean that uh, we in our sin, uh, you know, have the ability to fully keep these or something like this. What it means is, that before you became a Christian, you were enslaved to sin and to the devil, okay? 
God's commands were only this crushing anchor because your nature was one that only loved sin. But when God converts you, when you are regenerated, when you are born again, when you're given a new heart, all of a sudden now God's commands are not burdensome, they're light. You, you want to grow in holiness. You have the ability, at least to some small extent, to actually grow in your sanctification. That's the idea. To, to say it another way, imagine for a second that you're a human, which should be easy to do. If you're listening to this sermon, you should be able to imagine that you're a human. And I give you the command to fly, okay? Now, you can sit there and you can flap your arms as hard and as fast as you can, but you are not going to fly in and of your own strength as a human. It's not within your nature to fly. That command, fly, is crushing to you. It is burdensome because no matter how hard you try, you can't do it. But say that I turn you into a bird. I don't know how, okay? Just go with it for the illustration. I turn you into a bird, and now I give you the command to fly. You see, now that command is no longer burdensome because now you have a new nature. That's really what John is talking about by saying God's commands are not burdensome, that now you have a new nature nature. As the old adage goes, run John, run the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's kind of what John is talking about here. God's commands are not burdensome for those who've been transformed by the gospel, okay? But there's another sense in which God's commands are not burdensome. All of God's commands are given to maximize our joy, Okay? The reason God's commands feel burdensome is because we don't actually think that they lead us to joy. That's really the problem. There is not one command in Scripture that God has given you to follow that is there to somehow hinder your joy. There's not one command in Scripture that God has given you to follow because he wants you to be less ultimately happy. All of his commands are for your good. Now, it doesn't feel that way. Here's how it feels to me. There's all these fun things to do out in the world. They're sleeping around and building your own kingdom and doing drugs and spending your money however you want. There's all these things that are fun out in the world. And God, because he's like a medieval nun, doesn't want us to have any fun. So he gives us these commands. That's how it feels. And then when we have to follow God's commands, we do it begrudgingly. Well, I better follow this command so God doesn't damn me. So he's not mad at me. Something like that. No, 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 no. All of God's commands are there to maximize your joy. God's commands about sex within marriage is where you will find the most joy in that area in your Christian life. God's commands about disciplining your kids is where you'll find the most joy when it comes to your kids. God's commands about giving and being generous with your money is where you'll find the most joy when it comes to finances. If you've ever thought this thought, and I know you have because I have, and uh, I'm a bad guy and some of y'all are bad guys too, here's the thought. If I could take out some of God's commands in Scripture, which ones would I take out? You see, every place where you would want to take out one of God's commands is a place where you don't believe that that command is actually out for your good and out for your joy. Why would God just try to keep you from joy for no reason? God is there to maximize your joy. If you will see God's commands that way, they're no longer a burden, but a benefit, but a joy. So my kids, we have a uh, trampoline in the backyard and my kids do not know why they are not allowed to bring sharp toys on the trampoline okay I just have to we have a rule no toys on the trampoline because they'll bring sharp toys on the trampoline if it was up to them they would just take a knife in each hand and jump on the trampoline and have what they would think to be a great time now why do I not let them do that because I know that that ends very very badly they're having a good time until they stab themselves and cut the trampoline and it falls through and there's no more trampoline 
They don't know that though because they're not as smart as me. And the gap between us and God is infinitely more between me and my kids, okay? And so in their mind, they think daddy's rule is mean because we can't bring sharp toys on the trampoline. But the whole reason I give them that command is because I want them to have fun on the trampoline. They're not having fun if the trampoline breaks and they've got a stab wound. They're having fun when they're jumping and they're able to use the trampoline for a long time and nobody gets hurt. That's how God gives his commands. They are there to maximize our joy. So if you feel as though God's commandments are burdensome, primarily loving God and loving others, as expressed by all the things the New Testament says that that uh, that looks like, okay? You need to understand you're thinking about the commands the wrong way. You're trying to keep them in your own strength. You think that God is trying to rob you of joy, whatever it might be, which is why Jesus says this, and this is where we'll end. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you and you alone are uh, a good God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have given us mercy and grace. We confess that we don't often keep your commands. We don't love you like we should and we don't love others like we should, but would you help us? But in the meantime, as we go along in this journey, might we know that we're loved in the meantime? You don't love us when we get better. You don't love us when we're loving you back properly. You don't love us when we love others properly. You just love us because you're loving. You've just decided to set your heart towards humanity and redeem us because of Christ. We love you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.